welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits, as well as not requiring us to pay taxes on your generous donations. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com on this episode of why make we talk with james McNabb, a woodworker and artist who grew up in monfield new jersey overlooking new york city james grew up in a family that was very supportive of his creative endeavors his mother being a teacher and father a carpenter. Early experiences taking woodworking classes in middle and high school led James to pursue his undergrad in woodworking at the School for American Crafts at the Rochester Institute of Technology. It was as a graduate student at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania that James discovered the processes and ideas that continue to inform his main body of work. James currently resides in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he produces one-of-a-kind cityscape-inspired wood sculptures that explore the limitless possibilities of the urban landscape and our human relationship to it. Traditional woodworking techniques are combined with experimental mark-making to create his own visions of the urban landscape. So please join us as we take a walk through the endlessly imaginative mind of James McNabb. Here we are on uh, Why Make with James McNabb, uh, and we're calling this episode actually uh, James McNabb episode Redux (laughs) because we recorded this session about a month ago, and to our chagrin, when we went back to listen to the files, there was nothing there. So we're we're trying episode 47 again. Uh, Here at the Why Make team, we are not technological geniuses. We are technological idiots. And though we like to keep these episodes as fresh as possible, I can personally say from my own perspective, I forgot everything I said <laughs> a month ago. Well, anyways, we'd like to welcome James McNabb to Why Make and start with the Why Make question, which uh, James is now well rehearsed. What is your first memory of making something? Well, uh, hey guys, thanks for having me again. Um, my uh, first memories of making, I... I I don't think it's a an actual object that I can recall, but I really go back to my parents being um, supportive of creative endeavors and using my imagination from the earliest um, years of my life to try to just explore. I remember playing in the sandbox and making forts out of you know imaginary piles of. Uh, cinder blocks and things around the house. Uh, I uh, remember a lot of uh, things that my dad had built. Um, He was a carpenter, so he would make a lot of things in the garage with uh, small pieces of scrap wood, little things that we could play with. He made a pretty amazing castle for us to use our action figures and like pretend battle and stuff um, for Christmas one year. my mom was a teacher, so she was always kind of putting us through 
arts and crafts education from, from a really young age. But so I don't know. I, I think I explored a lot of that stuff and I may, maybe sorry to say that there wasn't a really memorable object that got made throughout it, but um, definitely feel like I was using those muscles uh, a lot as a young kid. Where did you grow up, James? I grew up in northern New Jersey, about uh, like half an hour outside of Manhattan, in a town called Montville. When do you think you actually made your first object? What was the what was that first thing that you made? Not maybe your first inspiration to make, but what was that first object? And I'm assuming it was wood. I guess I could pinpoint that pretty easily. I, I mean, I, there's a there's a countless amounts of things that I made through like art class um, growing up, but I I took my first woodworking class in I guess it was middle school. The projects were pretty simple. It wasn't really until I got into high school. When, when the woodshop class, I felt like was a kind of substantial program. There was a, a pretty well outfitted shop and Mr. Lepchik, the teacher, uh, had some really nice, uh, projects for introductory students. We, we made a nice, um, shelf out of like cherry, it had two coat hooks in it. We routed the edges. We sanded it all nice, you know, stained it and polyurethaned it and, I think it hangs in my my mom's quilting studio now. Yeah, that was the that was I think the first project we made there, and and I I made a bunch of things in high school. We we, we did like an Adirondack chair out of templates, you know, templated parts. Um, I made a checkerboard, which turned into like a chess table. Um, you know, that's a fun project to learn different skills. So those are like the earliest woodworking projects, and and I think it. It was nice to um, to get some of that experience early on. I think it it paved the way for me to to think that I might be able to do something. I guess I was looking for what to do if I was going to pursue college, and uh, I don't know. I didn't really have a, a very clear path at that time. So getting a, a couple of those classes under my belt uh, at least intrigued me to see if there was a path in woodworking to follow uh, in college. Which you did, because you, you ended up at RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technology, which actually has is the start of actually really the modern, uh, the rebirth of the American craft movement, the, the School for American Craftsmen at RIT. What uh, inspired you at RIT, and, and who were your instructors at RIT at the time? Um, my instructors at RIT were uh, Rich Tannen and Andy Buck. In some roundabout way, a lot of my peers were instructors. The graduate students were uh, a wealth of knowledge. The visiting artists, the uh, it was a it was a really great community of makers up there, and a and an incredible place to learn. And I didn't realize that it even existed when I was just taking woodshop classes in high school, trying to figure out how to continue that path. But um, I learned about the the school online, just trying to find out if, if you could go to college for woodworking, which didn't really realize that it was a possibility. Um, and when I found the program and planned on, on applying, we, we took a trip out there and visited the campus. And I think anybody who's interested in uh, working with machines or like what it's like in a classic woodshop, uh, 
would take one lap around the, the facility at RIT and, and really be captivated by uh, what what's going on there and what the potential is. So it's an incredible facility, and I really I really got a lot out of my time uh, with Andy and Rich. It was the right order for me to learn the fundamentals, the real um, important parts uh, of of how to manipulate this material, understanding all the tools. I felt like I was developing a, my own sensibility about it all. Over that course of the four years at RIT, who are your heroes? Who are who are your outside of Rich Tannen and and uh, Andy? Who really uh, whose work excited you? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure if, if at that point in my life I was looking at like other woodworkers or other artists um, as my like heroes or mentors. Uh, I don't know. I was probably like a little bit of like a punk teenage kid. Just I was probably a a, a tough student to some degree, and uh, I was really looking at like the people around me, trying to gauge where other people's experience had led them and and how well they were doing i mean there was some it was a, a really impressive class of students that at that time they were all had really great skills and were pushing themselves and pushing each other uh to try to make the best work that we could so i think more than looking at like outside world and the other famous artists at that time particularly um I was looking at the things that were happening right there in the shop and try, tr- trying to keep up, trying to put my spin on on things, uh, develop a little bit of like a voice, like uh, what, what kind of things I want to make. I think I was, I felt very early in in that process of like finding mentors or or, or sourcing inspiration. I might have come like a little late to that that party. And so, what uh, what was your language during those four years? What were the kinds of objects you were building were you building furniture were you building sculpture what what was uh, or were you just basically trying to incorporate new skills into your work the curriculum was was laid out that way you know there was some project parameters we would be exploring like something like bent lamination so we i knew for like a 10 week period you know I, we're held to parameters we we're going to be we we're going to be using bent lamination we were going to be making a table out of it so the voice that I could find with those parameters is, you know, it's guided. And I think that that was a, the right way to to introduce these things to a bunch of students who don't have that experience already. So a lot of the work I made at RIT was the result of the curriculum, you know, with my little spin on it. So there's some really exciting projects. I mean, I felt like the hand-built drawer project was opportunity to, to explore casework, to make drawers, cut hand-cut dovetails, really start to interact with how things fit together. And, you know, we had some opportunities to try a bunch of different things. There's always, like, a stack lamination project. I think that's probably because of how much, like, Wendell played a part. We took routine visits over to his studio. And, and that, w- that would be Wendell Castle here. We've, we, we, become, we become guilty on this podcast a lot of name-dropping, so... Uh, Yes, the infamous Wendell Castle, who died two years ago, I believe. Everybody had their stack laminated project that was kind of like inspired by Wendell. It was almost inevitable. Did like a nice uh, stack laminated uh, case of drawers and 
had like this cantilevered case and it was a that was a, a cool piece i i really enjoy that one that one's still uh i still have in my collection so i'll probably keep that one forever well i mean just from an historical point of view um wendell pretty much started the program at the school for american craftsmen so yeah somewhat um he was a big part of the of establishing the the kind of curriculum that's now taught there i mean he, he led by example in, in that way for sure I have been trying to go back to some of the people that might have inspired Wendell too, and just so happens I'm I'm in the neighborhood that Wharton Escherich did a lot of the work throughout his career, and I've come full circle. I I was watching what Wendell Castle's remarks were at Wharton's funeral, and how much he credits Wharton for inspiring him to look at furniture a different way, look at it as art his ability to problem solve on the fly. So it's been a fun way for me to kind of like tap into some of the energy that Wharton might have been having uh, when he was here working in this neighborhood. My my house is just a couple houses away from, it's like around the corner from the Margaret Eshrick house that Louis Kahn built for Wharton's niece. Wharton built out the whole kitchen inside the house and a bunch of his most noted collectors came from right here in this neighborhood and I just guess I've just been revisiting some of the things that he had experienced throughout his life and trying to place myself within that context uh some of the things that he experienced throughout his career seem in subtle ways similar to what we might be going through economically or politically or um over the past couple of years so nothing else uh, now, I guess I'm trying to find some of those mentors and those inspirations, and uh, he particularly seems to resonate with me. So from undergraduate school, you you decide to go to, to graduate school? or that Was that preordained? You knew as soon as you finished your undergrad that you were going to go on to graduate school? No, I, I, I mean, throughout my, my time here... Um, I can't say that the path was too clear at any point. Uh, it wasn't so written in stone, like what I was to, to do or what I was to be. Um, I, I got out of my time at RIT and I, I think I was ready. I think I like had a full experience there and I wasn't like burnt out, but I think I was ready to like see what the next stage would be. And, um, that piece that I had said was kind of like inspired by uh, Wendell's stack laminated techniques. It had gotten into a couple show, a couple exhibitions and it was like published in a book. And I, I took that as like, I should like try to figure out how to keep doing this. And then I had like bills to pay and like student loans and things. So I ended up getting a job with my, with my uncle. Um, he runs a uh, industrial vacuum pump manufacturing facility and I, I could kind of do a little bit of everything so I was like managing inventory and like purchasing parts and um, helping them redesign the website and like driving a forklift when I needed to or you know like whatever really needed to be done but two years of doing that I realized like I was losing a lot of the skills that I had I had developed at RIT I I hadn't made anything out of wood i hadn't explored any design ideas uh all my tools were like in storage in my parents basement and 
I guess it was kind of starting to weigh on my mind that uh, if if I went down too far this route, that I might lose some of that that experience that I had really really committed myself to while I was at RIT. So explored the possibilities of going to grad school. I reached back out to to Andy and Rich to talk about possibly going back to RIT for grad school. I can't remember exactly the conversation I had with with Andy, but I think he kind of steered me not away from RIT, but like towards a different a different teacher's like vision and and I had I had come to find out that uh, Alphonse Mattia, who taught uh, Andy at RISD, was going to be at Indiana University of Pennsylvania um, starting starting that school year. So um, I applied to to work with him, and I got in, and uh, I got married, and we both, my wife and I, both quit our jobs. And we moved out to Indiana so I could get my master's degree. In some ways, in preparation to teach. I think I always wanted to kind of... I I loved that my mother was a teacher and what great um, experience she had gotten from that. So uh, I felt like I had a little bit of that in me. And so I wanted to be qualified to teach. So, um, So yeah, I went back to IUP. And I guess I wasn't exactly sure what that experience was going to be like but yeah i mean so obviously uh, we've talked about it in the podcast before uh i started at iup um indiana pennsylvania which is (laughs) what about 35 miles uh northeast of pittsburgh so uh, not very far from pittsburgh It, it was a wonderful facility um my instructor was Chris Weiland, and then I think Steve Lohr was there for a little bit. And then, if I recall, because I still keep in touch with Chris Weiland, uh, Alphonse was there for like the blink of an eye. Yeah. He didn't stay very long. And then B.A. Harrington came in. Correct. And, and, and I was there for that whole transition. I, Chris was, was, um, was still kind of around. I, I had gotten to meet him a couple times. And then, yeah, um, Alphonse was there for like two two school years, and um, and then I got to meet BA as as my thesis show was coming down. She was setting up her office, so got to kind of see that whole transition occur. And you know, I, I had a great great time there, and met a bunch of bunch of great people. Talk about some of your work as you got in there and started things definitely started to transition in terms of my work at at IUP um nurtured the idea that it was the school of American crafts at RIT there was a a strong lean on like fine craft skills and um and I think that uh the the IUP program was was certainly a fine arts program and with less emphasis on uh, technical mastery and more emphasis on um, expression of of my my own personal ideas, and so I had to uh, transition uh, my my way of thinking there. And I think I fought it a little bit. I think I wanted to still come to grad school and be like a fine craft maker. I'm, I just don't think that that was going to um, work 
in terms of having a thesis committee and for us to get together every week and talk about, um, you know, what my thesis would be. It just seemed like I was, it was an uphill battle to, to just make a bunch of like finely crafted tables and chairs. So I did have to start thinking about, uh, you know, why I make and what it is that I'm going to, going to put all my time and energy into to make. So I feel like I struggled with that part, but I, for almost the first entire year that I was there. And I think I went through some periods of like what I would call maker's block. I just yeah. like got so frustrated with like having to, to design these things and sketch it all out and make a model. And I just didn't even realize what I wanted to even make. So there was a couple opportunities to just loosen up. And I think that this came through some suggestion of Alphonse. I think he, he wanted me particularly to just like let go of some of those hangups about, you know, hand cut dovetails and uh, everything needs like a full scale technical drawing in order to like start cutting material uh, to just like loosen up and figure out like what it is that is actually fun about doing this. I appreciated that. I don't think I absorbed it all at the, at the moment, but uh, reflecting back on it, I think it was really important to, to like remind myself that it is fun to do this. It's not just like dread, you know, dreadful technical engineering. <laughs> um, and what came out of that moment was just in like the frustration of not knowing what to make. I had just grabbed a couple pieces of wood out of the scrap bin, turned on a bandsaw and started just making some marks, removing some material without real sense of what it was. And I would take them off the bandsaw and stand them on the table next to me. And as I went through a couple of them, um, started to look like strangely familiar, like table legs or like a screwdriver or some kind of like abstracted, like little hook tool or something. But standing up together on the table, it kind of started to look like a skyline of these like abstracted architectural forms. Um, that idea was kind of captivating. I just figured like I was making something without really thinking about what it was or, or like why or what it would be for, where it would be displayed, all those things that at the moment were stressful. Um, so I just stayed up that entire night and uh, I think I made about 300 more of them. And I had a class the next morning uh, where I get all the grad students would get together and it was like the graduate critique class. So they were basically just there to talk about the idea. So I had a, a bunch of new ideas, was void of all the technical engineering and all the things that I was being, feeling bogged down by. And I think that, I think it kind of set off this new kind of era of, of me trying to, trying to do this work because it was fun and, and let that be the guiding principle. <laughs> um, so I had a lot to show for myself after that one night. And I, I, in some ways, I feel like I haven't stopped making those things since then, over 10 years ago now. Very pivotal, pivotal time in, in the history of your making things. I think things. so. So I, I just, just, to, just to go back for a second, um, I'm sort of curious when Knowing Alphonse Mattia's work, and Alphonse Mattia's work involves very humorous objects. They're almost all functional objects, but sort of sort of recontextualizing functional objects. Uh, and you went to study with him, yet it seems like you took some of your 
classical wood. You took some of your baggage with you from RIT in the sense that I doubt Alphonse was requiring you to do measured drawings and uh, do any of that stuff. You were sort of uh, self-inflicting your this this structured <laughs> sense on yourself that you learned in undergraduate school, and you had to let learn how to let go of it all. Yeah, and it just seems like a really wonderful process that you discovered. I'm going to completely let go of it. I'm not going to sit down and sketch anything. I'm going to actively go to the tool and and create. And not only that, I mean, as woodworkers, we tend to we don't think of things as assemblages. We think of things, you know, this this part links to this part, links to this part, links to this part. And it just seems like an absolutely wonderful process of discovery that you found that each of these small individual objects is creates a greater whole. That's the concept. Yeah, there's some there's something there. I, I'm pretty Im- impressed by Alphonse's technical abilities too. He he. If you look at some of those upholstered chairs, the way the frames are constructed, they're incredible. They're incredible, and I. I think for the sake of like a grad school experience, um, he was less interested in, in training makers and more interested in getting ideas out of people who are already makers. I feel really grateful for the order that I learned that in because I think if I had learned how to express my ideas in, in the form of a, chair or a table but had no sense of, of how to how to execute any of those ideas i think i'd be left just like with you know half-baked projects that weren't truly expressing the things that i wanted to express or and now then when i went to iup i just felt like i was able to utilize all of those skills to, to actually like express an idea i think the skills need to come before the creativity because one without the other it, it feels like it's like having a a great idea in your head and, and not being able to use language to, mm-hmm. to, to speak it, you know? Right. But, it, and, but like in most cases you have to, you have to have knowledge of the language and then you have to forget it all. It just sort of becomes, it comes the background noise. There's definitely some truth to that. I, I think like to learn the skills is, is the first step. And then I, I don't know, at least, at least for, in terms of like the bandsaw, um, and some of the things that I've, I've started doing on a bandsaw, it's been about like now bending those rules or, or even breaking them to just to do some really non-conventional things that uh, nobody else is doing on, on that machine. Right. Well, it, it, you know, the end result is that you want the tool to become an extension of you. The tool yeah. is just a tool. The tool is just a tool. It's a means to an ends. It is not the ends to an ends, which is, I, I think an interesting an interesting topic in 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 creativity these days because you know as a lot of our tools become computers you have to think well when is the computer being the com- creative force and when are you in control of it and I mean I not to go down this rabbit hole I'm, I'm but I'm amazed by this rabbit hole because. I think there's lots of amazing tools out there that allow you to extend your creativity, but they're just tools. They're just hammers. A computer is just a big hammer. A bandsaw is just a big hammer. And you have to let the tool become an extension of yourself. And I blabbed <laughs> on too long about that. Uh, <laughs> I felt like a bandsaw is a good one for that that type of philosophy, though, because um, if you make everything on a table saw, it tends to be a lot of straight lines, 
you know, rectilinear forms and stuff. There's some looseness to the bandsaw. It feels like it was always a very preliminary tool. It's a rough, it's a very rough tool in in most situations. You don't uh, finish a piece of, of furniture on the bandsaw. You 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 break big pieces of wood down to more manageable pieces of wood, and then then they go through like the process of being refined and stuff. But I always felt like there was just a lot less to keep you within like strict guidelines on that machine. So just getting a sense of like control over it, I felt like it was more, it was definitely more expressive. I could be more creative on that machine and, and even get like finished results on it. I, I was on a quest to like really refine uh, the objects I was making right there on the machine. Right. But you've often described your process on the bandsaw as sketching, which I yes. love because it's uh Sketching is just a very sort of instantaneous gestural process. You don't really think about it. You just go to the tool and it's like having a pencil in your hand. Definitely. The, the body of work that I'm making is, is a good mix-up of a lot of the experiences I've had and the things that I have gravitated towards. The beginning stages of, for instance, like the round sculptures that I, that I make that I call mm -hmm. city wheels, they go through a really dry and kind of technical engineering stage where I'm... <laughs> measuring the radius and the number of parts and there's a couple of table saw jigs to make sure that each of those parts come out perfectly the same and that you know they come together as a circle with no weird gaps in the middle then that gets joinery and you know it, it's a very technical part but I think what's important for me to make when I to feel like I'm making art is then to, to reach the bandsaw stage of the project and I feel like I can turn the technical part of my brain off, and it and it it's it's important that there's no like pre-planned you know patterns or designs for those that cutting part. I basically just sit down with the composition. It's more like a canvas at that point, and I can start to be more creative with the woodworking. Then I sit down on the bandsaw, put some good music on, and I I get to be creative. You know, I mean, you look at your sculptures, but the, you said the first one is like you did 300. So you're doing them in mass quantities. Yeah, and and there's like a, a nice feeling when you can like work through a lot of parts. Like something really like kind of aggravating about spending an entire day sanding a piece and like literally nothing has changed to it except, you know, you can see the grain a little more clear, clearly like by the end of a work day. But with some of the bandsaw stuff, I, I really can... Um, work through different ideas like rapidly. I think it taps into like some of the feelings I have about cities too. I like fast paced kind of frantic energy that you see down in the middle of Times Square. Going back to, to those early pieces you created in grad school, what was some of the energy you discovered in creating those cityscapes? I mean, so it was just, the process was you just started creating and it became a familiar form, which is a cityscape because you, you grew up in a somewhat urban area, right? Overlooking the largest urban area, one of the largest urban areas in the yeah, world. Yeah, definitely. I, I um, look like a commuter town to, to Manhattan. So there was like a train stop, like right down the street from my house. You could take it right into, into the city. And like from certain hilltops, you could see the skyline, like at the horizon, mm -hmm. like real small. It served as like a symbol back then of like this you know, metropolis on the horizon where 
I found like a lot of my friends would were graduating from high school and getting good jobs and moving into like Hoboken and starting these like exciting lives. And I, I don't know, from afar, it looked like even back then it was where uh, I would need to be, where I would need to go to, to like be at the highest competitive level. And then like in thinking about this stuff during grad school, I, I kind of reflected more on through like novels and and film throughout history it it seems like the cities were depicted as a place where like new beginnings could be found where people could uh find their true identity there's just endless stories of people traveling from the countryside to the city in pursuit of a better life i I always felt like an outsider you know i didn't grow up in a city so it it felt Mm -hmm. like a foreign idea and, and something that I, like an insatiable desire to find out for myself. So making this work, this body of work was kind of an exploration of like an outsider's perspective of these worlds that I didn't know fully about at the time. And from the making perspective, that the projects weren't really fleshed out the way I had gotten used to. So Part of it was an exercise for me to see if it was even possible to make these pieces. Uh, there, I couldn't find a lot of examples of people using these construction methods to, to come up with these types of forms. So not that it was like important that I was the first or the best to do any of it, but um, there was a thrill to like to have a simple sketch, just like chicken scratch sketch, and then like challenge myself to see if, it, if I could possibly make this thing. Um, just to go back a second, I know I mentioned this before, and I can't remember your response, so I'll ask it again. I mean, you, cities are amazing places, but you were what, like 10 years old when 9-11 yeah. happened? Something like that? Uh, no, I was a little, little older, but yeah. Uh, I was probably uh, as, as old as a sophomore in high school. Okay, right. You're watching, a city, you're watching a city landscape burn down. We were a commuter town to New York City, so... Um... I was I was in art class when the announcement came over the loudspeaker and the the girl sitting next to me. I'm pretty sure her parents were either in the building or in the building next to it. I mean, there was a a, a huge amount of uh, kids I went to school with uh, whose parents would take a train into the city every day. So they they were might as well have just been there, you know. It, it, it hit us as close to home as you can imagine. We we left school that day and drove to one of those hilltops, and it was just a billowing smoke coming out off the horizon line. So, no, it was certainly a day we most of us won't forget. Yeah, I'm I'm just curious because I mean I often think of the emotional impact of big events like that, and then going into you know, really thinking about cityscapes and everything cityscapes are made of. Well, they offer us opportunities, but there's also, uh, you know, there's also watching cityscapes fall apart. There's watching derelict buildings fall down. And there's also momentous occasions like watching the two tallest buildings in the world fall down. I think that it's true that the the body of work that I have made inspired by cities is quite utopian in, in a lot of ways like there's a absence of you know poverty or the the filth that occurs in cities or a lot of the things that uh you know the decay of the infrastructure and it's you know that 
which is definitely there, and maybe that's part of the outsider's perspective from the from the horizon line. You don't you don't yeah. see uh, how dirty the streets are. Um, you just see this the silhouette of perfection, you know, architectural. You know, lines. in some ways, I I kind of like avoided some of those like heavy narrative. It's probably better to just uh, sit around for me to sit around with like couple cocktails and like have a conversation about 9-11 and the impacts on cities and things then for me to try to express it in like uh, in an object it's never been my strongest way of communicating i don't i don't know when when i look at your at your work though because of the the contrast in textures like i'm looking at city wheel like the outside is smooth but then you get into the rough texture and you can read into that a lot. Um, you can, you know, there could be dirt and filth and it could be the, you know, just those could be the windows or of the buildings. I mean, there's a lot there, you know, and, and by each no, one being different, because I'm sure, I'm sure that there is not a single one that is the same in there. Probably pretty close, but yeah, I mean, it's, you really could look at it. And I, that's the way that I take your work is like, there's so much there, you know, and you're, you're looking at it from the inside, you know, you made it, you're like, ah, yeah, this is what it means. But man, there's a lot, there's a lot more depth than, than that I see as a, as an outside observer of your work. It's just, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. We can never, (laughs) we'll never know how other people interpret our work. We'll just know what we put into it and it's all valid. I mean, I wasn't asking, I, I'm just curious, you know, being on the sidelines for for being basically on the sidelines of a huge urban area like New York. I mean, every time I go anywhere near New York, it has a big impact on me. It's just on a scale. It's on a feel so entirely different from what I know that it definitely impacts my outlook. Um, so that's why I think tackling cities and urban areas is a really uh, is a really interesting approach to it's an it's still a narrative object it's just uh, you know it, it, you know we can't <laughs> our i don't think our job as artists is to address all the ails of the world and somehow uh, bundle them up into some emotional package that people can swallow uh, yeah i think you're right there i i i don't know i guess i've tried to think about how much uh is it a linear story that I'm trying to tell? Am I trying to just offer a couple little glimpses for somebody else to pull their own uh, narrative out of? I'm probably more comfortable with the latter. I mean, I, everybody has an opinion about the cities. It's not always a good one, but like you said, everybody e- either I don't know has been to one and it had an impact on them, or grew up in one, or or just hates everybody that comes from them. I don't know. It's um, but it seems like <laughs> there's just something to grab onto there. And even, even like just from like an architectural standpoint, people like looking at structure of things. I mean, I've kind of come to feel like buildings are just giant pieces of furniture anyway. It's just parts coming together. And the way we depict those things, that tells a story in itself. So uh, just trying to figure out with the with the bandsaw how i can kind of depict these skyscraper type forms abstracted enough so that it 
that people aren't like like locating a specific building in the world. But it, it leaves it open leaves it open to interpretation, right? Which is, you know, that's that's good art. You and know, like... and architecture has been viewed as art for, for forever because I think buildings have, I mean, buildings occupy space and time and have an emotional impact. I appreciate you saying like the emotional content though, because if, if there's, if I lack like a, a clear story in, in the work, um, it's, it's substituted with like a lot of emotion, um, and I've and I've come to realize that, and I think that this is something that a lot of makers could benefit focusing in on a little bit more, is that you know our emotions and our energy is embodied in these objects when when we make them. If I am having a bad day or a bad week or going through like a a hard time or something, as much as I would like to avoid it, I think it comes out in the work. And it's not in a very like literal way where somebody, you know, like I, I smashed that part with a hammer because I was having a bad day. That does happen though. <laughs> There's like this uh, embodied like vibe, and I and I think that even if you're trying to hide it, it is seen. And I I, yeah. I can't really explain it very well, but I can look back at work that I produced at a time when I was not feeling. Uh, very good or or maybe the circumstances around the project were not so favorable and i think i noticed it and i think other people notice it i think if we're putting our best foot or our best energy forward it really sticks and it stays there um for everybody to see a little esoteric maybe but you know that's no not at all that's one of the reasons this podcast exists i mean this is all esoteric. Why people make the whole question is esoteric. <laughs> but there's something really interesting in your process for me because the pieces are assemblages. They're made out of, I mean, uh, I imagine the city wheel is made out of hundreds, if not thousands of pieces. And I'm just curious in terms of how you approach your process. I think personally, if I were to sit down at the bandsaw and set my task to create a thousand unique objects, I would struggle after about object 10. I'm just uh, curious how you keep that process fresh and how you think about it. I mean, because do you keep your sessions fairly short at the bandsaw so that you can maintain your freshness? Or even when I sit down with my sketchbook, there is a, there's, a, there's a limited period of time I can maintain the freshness of my ideas before they just begin to repeat themselves. Or is it like a long meditation that you just get yeah, into? exactly. I have reflected on the my behaviors in the woodshop as like kind of like a dance. I, I don't like to be really rigid it, working throughout the shop. And it, one example is like, I, I do think that there's always multiple things going on. Uh, there's at least three or four pieces being produced at any given time and so there might be like a bunch of glue ups that need to get done and then i'll go to something else and it might be to sit down on the bandsaw for two hours and then go back take the clamps off you know clean some things up do another round of glue ups 
and it should feel like a dance, like a more of like a flow state um, for me. Sitting at the bandsaw is a little different because it's very like internal. I, I think I put headphones on and it is like more like a meditation. I, I think I and I've kind of like come to practice this is to, you know, focus in on like one area of life or one thing that I need to kind of work out in my own mind. And boy, you'd be, you'd be surprised how fast two, two hours can disappear. Uh, I'm not really thinking so much like this piece needs to be different than the, than the the next piece, or uh, I have to space this out more or cut it differently. But that's kind of like the magic of having like a good sketchbook too. You, You know, you're not so focused on like, this has to be the best drawing I ever did and like that circle's a little lumpy or you know like it it's just a matter of um of of how much effort it requires to to get some of these ideas out and once i get like into a focused state on the bandsaw it feels like everything else just fades into the background the stress of life and the bills that need to get paid and it just goes away at least for that moment I can't say the same thing about like dancing around the wood shop, like doing glue ups, but but that seems to be like the thing for me. Like, I might as well be in like a in like a temple, just sitting there, and like I I feel a sense of clarity and like a a sense of like effortless flow uh, sitting on a woodworking machine. <laughs> right. I mean, that's a that's a that's a great thing. Moving forward. Um... Where I mean, you've you've been in a bunch of wonderful exhibitions. We will put all that information up on the website. We will also put some information about Wharton Eshrick up there and Wendell Castle. But uh, where do you see the work moving going forward? Are you still completely enamored with the the path you're on and continue to follow it, or do you have some other ideas? And yes and no. I I think it's inevitable that the work's going to change. Uh, I I'm. I'm certainly always doing other things. Uh, I bought a hundred year old house that um, is not fully updated. So uh, I've been, I've been coming back to traditional woodworking in a sense that I can work on my hundred year old house now. And that has brought me a lot of joy and something that I feel really proud to uh, be working on. Um, There's always some, side projects that are that feel less necessary i'm finding like the the cityscape work is is now it is my career it's my living to to produce this work i feel so lucky to to be able to say that um and you know to be honest this touch and go every once in a while whether i can continue to do this or not but for for the time being like i am i'm really excited that i get to wake up every day and do this kind of work um, to the best of my ability. So as long as that continues to be a possibility, I'm going to be pursuing um, this body of work, but then all the the next evolutions of it um, will be coming soon. And, you know, I just celebrated 10 years of, of making this body of work, so... Not not like I'm closing the, the chapter or anything, but uh, it's a, it's been a it's been a nice opportunity to reflect on 
uh, both the successes and the failures that have happened over the years and things that uh, I wish I had done differently and some of the things that I think set me off to where I am now and um, and also a moment to kind of like think about what my goals will be for the next, I don't know, one, two, five, and ten years from now. I think I want to build a studio. I think that that's part of like what I think is resonating so much with Morton Eshrick is that um, he reached a point in his career that he just felt like he needed to get out of this um, area into the country, build himself a studio, and then see like what what kind of work came from that new environment. Um, I look at I look a lot at Brancusi's work, and he was so focused on on how the work looked inside the studio and how to preserve like displaying work inside that space. And I think I'm kind of like that. I'm a I'm a creature of my studio, and I and I like to bring people to see the work there. I like how the work looks being produced there. I like all of the energy of seeing other things that I've made leading up to that work and uh, bits of my personality that, that kind of lend to why I do things a certain way. So uh, it's a, it's a big goal and I have a lot to accomplish in order to actually achieve this. But um, if I can keep going and keep making good decisions, I, I really want to build myself a studio. Well, actually, uh, we'd love to see some pictures of your studio. So uh, send us some pictures. Send us a movie. We will put it all up on the website so we can see see your work actually in its environment. And do you do you have any questions that are burning for you, Rob? What have we left out? Not really. We we've we've talked about quite a bit. I think we've uh, yeah. I'm, I I mean, the only thing we didn't touch on is like uh, how the pandemic has affected everybody in the last couple of years but it was a big it was a big thing i don't know i could touch on it real quick um i, I think it shifted some of my focus i it's work slowed down you know exhibitions that i was planning on participating in got canceled uh galleries that usually sell my work closed and um and all my friends went inside their house and didn't talk as as often as I would like to. Um, so had to kind of get used to the possibility of things changing drastically and how I would adapt to that. Um, but also I think it, it, it shifted some of my priorities. Um, I think I put this work above some of the things that mean more to me in life, like, uh, visiting with my family, um, taking care of my health, and if anything, it was a nice moment to just like reevaluate that that list of priorities. And uh, I stopped I stopped making excuses like I like I couldn't afford to take a day off to go see my dad, uh, or like I I couldn't afford the day to go to the doctor. Um, and I think that it's like it's been a nice uh, it's been a nice change because I think I'm carrying it into whatever this post COVID if we are in post COVID or whatever, but um, 
you know, I'm not a teenager anymore and I have to kind of think about um, life in, in a little less of a, a little more impermanent way. And so I'm trying to seize, seize the days to the best of their ability now and um, getting to do a bunch of things that I, I probably wouldn't have made time for uh, unless the pandemic had happened. I'm a, I'm a gardener now, which I wasn't in the past. Uh, the pandemic allowed me to like take up gardening, which has been a pretty amazing thing to to come to learn about. I taught myself how to bake bread. That was pretty fun. Well, that seems like a, a great place to wrap it up. Um, so uh, thanks for joining us, not once, but twice, James. Uh, uh, putting in my own two cents, this was a far better conversation than the last ones. All right, second time's a charm. Yeah, so second time's a charm. So as we always end it, why make? Why make? Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash why dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com you can also find us on instagram and twitter at at why make pod this episode is recorded on squadcast and edited by us on audacity thanks for listening thanks for listening